This is going to be Matthew 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Gospel say, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them back right away. All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them there on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Father, would you just illuminate your scriptures for us? Would you help us to understand what you want to say, what the Spirit is saying? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, even right now, in moments of crisis, reign as king over the earth, and we pledge our allegiance to you, and we worship you as our king. In Jesus' name, amen. I would guess that lots of you felt a dip in your productivity this week. For those of you who are employed or trying to work from home, or even if you're one of those people that went in the office, I can imagine that you had a little more time on different news websites and social media and paying attention to kind of what was going on. And I confess to you that it was a very difficult week for me to write a sermon. Um, it was difficult because I'm antsy about just being apart from everybody. I miss you. Uh, you know, we just sense the anxiety that's kind of pervasive in our culture, in our world. I don't know if you found yourself being a bit irritable. Uh, the rhythm and the routine of life is just thrown off. Um, you know, I really miss every Tuesday night for the last year or so. Emily and I have had like 20 or 25, uh, 25 to 30-year-olds in our house for apprentice group, these like mostly single folks that we just love, and our kids are like, is tonight apprentice? And instead we're seeing each other over Zoom calls, which is better than nothing, but we just miss the rhythm and the routine of, of being with people and getting out. And I love grabbing meals with people most days of the week. And uh, it's just been difficult to get things done. In spite of that, there's some sweetness in the middle of this season. It's been fun to watch people creatively try to support each other, creatively try to occupy themselves. And, and we've seen the generosity of individuals really ramp up the inventiveness. It's just that, that part of it has been really fun. I've loved seeing all these people who I think are total strangers in my neighborhood, but it turns out they just never walked before. And so we're seeing neighbors and, and, and greeting each other from a safe distance. I have these gigantic birds in the, the front yard of my house, and three different neighbors have texted me about, hey, did you know about the herons? And it's great, because we're finally getting out and enjoying nature. I've gotten to read one of my favorite books to a bunch of kids and adults in the church, and all of that's happened and been a sweet factor in the middle of this coronavirus stuff. 
But you know, one of the most difficult parts of being a part this week in particular for me is this, this is what we call Holy Week. Palm Sunday begins this week of the countdown to the cross. Thursday at 6 o'clock, we're going to have a streaming service remembering Palm, uh, Maundy Thursday when Jesus washed the, 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 the feet of the disciples and he gave them this mandate, that's what Maundy comes from, uh, as I've done for you, so you do this for each other. Now, Thursday, my friend John Thompson, a cornerstoner and a professor at ORU, is going to share a Maundy Thursday sermon. Friday at 6 is Good Friday. We're going to have a Good Friday service and remember what Jesus did on the cross uh, for the sake of the world. There's Holy Saturday, which most of us don't talk about all that much, just remembering when Jesus descended to the dead, and then that leads to Easter Sunday. It's kind of a bummer for those of us who work in the church world not to be able to do this together because this is like the on week for the church. Next week, Easter is the best Sunday of the year, and it's the most theologically significant Sunday of the year, and it was going to be amazing. We were going to do three services. The Kilgores were going to lead us all in worship. We're going to be crammed in together. The Kilgores were just going to be amazing. The service was going to feel uh, great. And having all these extra people for pastors all over the world is kind of a boost to the pastor ego, and things would have been amazing. And the fact that we'll be sitting in our pajamas next Sunday and not together and taking pictures and feeling just the joy of celebrating the resurrection means it's probably not going to feel quite as amazing as we'd like it to. And in my vain pursuit of amazing, uh, it was especially difficult to write a sermon today. And especially difficult on a text that is as familiar as this one. You're going to hear a Palm Sunday service message on this Mark, Matthew's gospel or Mark's or Luke's every single year and so I was a little bit disillusioned in my own tiredness and, and lack of creativity oh man I don't know if I'm going to have an amazing word to share and I don't know if I do but in spite of this I feel like the Lord gave me an insight this week into the text that I hadn't seen before and I want to just share it with you in the next couple of minutes you remember that moment? A few of, few of us probably watched it when it happened, uh, but maybe you've seen videos or posters at that time in the, in, uh, the NBA like slam dunk contest where Michael Jordan was still in the prime of his career and he goes all the way to the opposite side of the court and then slowly dribbles and like ramps up his speed and leaps from the free throw line and like pumps in midair and then dunks the ball. People are like, oh my goodness, did he dunk from the free throw line? It was one of the most amazing athletic accomplishments to see this guy do this amazing feat. And it was one of Michael Jordan's great poster moments. When people think about the amazing athlete that he was, they think about that moment. Palm Sunday is, is kind of meant to be Jesus' iconic poster moment. If you can kind of imagine the topography of Israel, Jesus in the previous chapter is in Jericho down by the Jordan River in the valley and makes his way through the Judean wilderness, past Bethany where Mary and Martha live, and he's ascending the Mount of Olives, and he comes over the crest of the Mount of Olives, and all of Jerusalem is spread out before him to the west. He can see in the distance the place where he would later be crucified. He can see from where he is the upper room where the disciples would later gather to receive the Holy Spirit. But most prominent in his view right there is the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley is, is in between him and the temple, but it opens up in this beautiful vista. 
And the people would have seen and heard rumor that, hey, Jesus and his disciples are coming. And there would have been an electricity in the air as Jesus came up the Mount of Olives from the east and crested at its top and, and the road opened before him and the people saw that he's coming. And they would have been especially delighted when they saw that he was coming in fulfillment of these messianic images given through Zechariah riding on the colt that no one had previously ridden before. In the crowd, as Jesus descended the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley and making his way toward the temple with the eastern gate open, the crowd began to gather and to shout these words of acclamation, these messianic titles and royal imagery, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The coming of the Son of David, he's fulfilling, in, in their view, God's promise of an eternal dynasty in David's name. They're saying, The one who can save us has come. And the people begin to roll out the red carpet. They lay out their garments on the road and they wave palm branches. They're, they're welcoming this king who they believe is coming to rule. And just as Jesus reaches the foot of the mount, that's when you snap the picture. Especially if you've seen all of these movies where it's like white European Jesus. That's what we like picture because of so many poor depictions in art over the years but Jesus is at the bottom of the Mount of Olives making his way up toward the temple he's surrounded by the crowds he's he's riding the colt the colt is treading on the garments of the people laid out before him the palms are everywhere the people are crying we crying out with joy and Jesus we think is smiling and that's the poster moment that we think Palm Sunday is meant to be Jesus, surrounded by these adoring crowds, coming into his, his own, taking what's due him. It's meant to be his poster moment. It struck me this week, as I was thinking about this really familiar story, that if Americans were to rewrite the story of Jesus, this is precisely how we'd orchestrate Easter Sunday. Jesus, having conquered death, rides into Jerusalem in defiance of his enemies, adored by the crowds, and he demonstrates that there's a new sheriff in town. He'd go straight to the Sanhedrin who plotted his arrest and his crucifixion, and they'd be booted. He'd make his, they'd make his way to, to Pilate's uh, palace, and Pilate would, be, Pilate would be drug out before the people, and Jesus would be put on Pilate's throne. If Americans were to rewrite the story of Easter, we would make it much more like Palm Sunday. But in the real story, uh, Jesus' real poster moment was to come a week later when the crowds that now pressed in all around him would all but abandon him. And as Holy Week would progress, Jesus' polling numbers would plunge. His likability, the number of his followers, his popularity would decrease daily. It was more scandalous by the day to be associated with the prophet from Nazareth, especially with his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and death. By the end of the week, it's like, Jesus, who? It's like, well, we move on to the next would-be Messiah. And when Resurrection Sunday comes around, Jesus would share his victory with a couple of women in the garden and a couple of strangers on the side of the highway, which makes for a rather understated victory lap, if you follow me. Palm Sunday is what an American Jesus would pine for, visible, political, religious, cultural success. The crowds are finally validating, uh, you know, from a certain perspective, what Jesus has already known of himself. 
But biblical and historical Jesus appears to take no delight in this poster moment that we feel like he is so primed for. In fact, in Luke's version of, the, of, of this story, which is my favorite, Jesus is not only not reveling in the success, he's weeping as he comes into Jerusalem. He's weeping because he realized that the adoration of the crowds is largely misguided. They're projecting onto him their own uh, hopes of a political savior. And Jesus, in knowing this, weeps because he knows that their idolatry is ultimately going to cost them everything. That within 40 years, this temple that they so idolized would be destroyed because they hungered for political power and not the salvation that Jesus intended to bring. They wanted things to be amazing on their terms. We spend so much of our lives wanting things to be amazing, or at least wanting things to appear amazing. And Americans in particular, not to pick on us, but I think it's acutely true of us, are obsessed with visible signs of success. Uh, our house, our car, the trips we take, any quantifiable measure of our influence. Uh, f- for some of us, this comes uh, into play when we think about our social media influence, likes, retweets, uh, but the cultivated public image that many of us have. We're taking pics, pictures of ourselves with people who count. We're obsessed with things being amazing or our lives seeming amazing. And churches can get into the similar competition for things to be amazing too. Churches can post things on social media like we had a hundred salvations today as if we could reduce salvation to just something that you quantify and put out as a stat on your social media. Or celebrating, maybe a church would celebrate like a milestone number of media followers practically begging, would you please like us? Would you please validate us? Would you please make us feel great about ourselves and what we're accomplishing? I've felt this temptation as a pastor. Over the years, I've had the chance to spend time with leaders who in my circles are really well-respected, people that, like, I look up to, read their books. And in the times where I've been able to spend time with these folks, I've felt this, like, this deep temptation to casually take a picture. Here I am just hanging out with my buddy so-and-so, as if we're buddies and hang out all the time. And I feel this temptation to post this, not because it's just like, hey, I'm casually documenting my life. No, it's because I want people to think that people like that respect me. It's really idolatry. It's really, in a sense, insecurity. It's really, in a sense, trying to make a name for myself. When I really ask myself the question, why would I post this? I psych myself out because I realize my my motivation is not together, altogether altruistic. I feel my own gravitational pull toward conventional models of success and significance and popularity and relevance. And there's tremendous deceptive temptation, I think even and especially in the church world, to leverage good and godly things in pursuit of idolatrous influence. Like even with what I've announced today, like I'm really proud of, of the financial gifts we're able to make toward our city and toward our world. In our world, as the coronavirus thing goes on, I'm really proud of those. I think I also have to check myself and ask, what's my own motivation for pursuing this? Is there part of wanting to create or capture momentum? Am I doing this in any way to win influence? Would we be doing this in some twisted way to build the Cornerstone brand? 
to try to motivate or coerce people into giving, to make myself seem like a wise or an adaptive leader. And even as I name this, some of you are like, oh, that's gross. And it is. And that's the complex and the twisted thing about the, about like the human heart, is even, in, even when we do good, as Paul said, like sin is right there with us. Do we do good things and right things because we're motivated by the love of God and the love of neighbor and it's just the right thing to do? Or do we do these things in order in a twisted religious version of it, trying to win friends and influence people? Let me just say, God help me and God forgive me if I ever bow to the idol of influence and lead our church anywhere but a simple pursuit of cultivating with patience and diligence, a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And I would say my aspiration, my, my, my hope as a pastor, and I think it's your aspiration as well, as a part of our community, is to do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons and to do this in community together. When Jesus has this moment where success is handed to him on a silver platter, this poster moment on Palm Sunday, it's not so much that he rejects it as it's that he's just utterly indifferent to it. His posture on Palm Sunday is is one of just rejecting traditional models of success. If Jesus had like church growth consultants with him at the time, he would say, look, like you need to use this moment to advance your mission. But you know what Jesus does like right after this moment where the crowds are adoring him? He goes into the temple and he unleashes prophetic havoc instead. He stampedes cattle through the temple. He's kicking over the tables of moneylenders. Jesus was so unafraid of losing followers, of sacrificing his polling numbers, that he at this like would-be poster moment does something that could risk everything could risk tarnishing his brand. And it's not that I think that Jesus is inherently against success or against popularity, but I do think Jesus is against successism, seeking success as an end in itself or against popularity as its own pursuit. I think I could really safely adapt this teaching from Paul in 1 Timothy 6. Paul's talking about money, but I adapt it here in in the quest for success. It says those who want to be successful fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of success is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for success have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Success is not an end in itself that's worthy of pursuit in the kingdom of God. I don't listen to a ton of podcasts. A lot of folks will ask me, like, how on earth are you not listening to this one? And I just, I can't do it. Uh, I need some levity in my life. So I've been listening to this podcast called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And Conan interviews all these celebrities and actors and comics. And I think they're on, like, season three or four. And I've listened to tons of them. And it's been really, really uh, intriguing for me. Uh, Conan is, is sitting with these people who've made it. And himself, like, he's a guy who's made it who's had commercial success, conventional success. People know his name. They know just the swoop of his hair. And Conan, in conversation with these peers, these people who've made it, who have financial independence, 
uh, ha- there's these illuminating themes that kind of pop up. The things that I've picked up about Conan's psyche and perspective over the years in the entertainment industry. One of the things I appreciate from Conan is he demonstrates a, an inherent suspicion of celebrity. Like the sense of like people who've been in the industry for a while get that it's not all it's cracked up to be. And in fact, there's a kind of emptiness to it. Like the, the more you're known by the crowds, the less you're known by real people. And there's a kind of emptiness, and so there's a suspicion of celebrity. Now, one of the other things I've, I've heard again and again eked out in conversations between Conan and people who've made it is this kind of disillusionment with vanity. And so you can imagine being an up-and-coming actor or comic or artist of some kind and going to these huge award shows where you think you're going to be validated for your talents, and instead there's this sense for those who are insiders on the industry that it's just kind of fake and inflated and unhealthy, and it's like it's not a real world. And I think the, the, the third thing I've seen I've picked up over conversations between Conan and all these people who've made it is a kind of sobriety about purpose and meaning in life. A kind of measured awareness that making it commercially does not make a meaningful life. Now, it certainly can make a good life. It can make like a, a lucrative life, a comfortable life in many ways, but it doesn't make a fulfilled life. And I've appreciated hearing this eked out in conversations that this is not ultimate, that you have to build your life on something more. It takes success to realize that success itself is an empty pursuit. Which is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that when you pray or you give or you fast in order to be seen by other people, if your motivation is to do whatever, fill in the blank, with the motivation of being seen by other people, their response is the limit of your reward. Don't do even these apparently religious things with the motivation of being seen, thinking that God's also going to pat you on the back for this. No, if you do this with the, uh, the ambition of being noticed and applauded and loved by others, their response is your reward. And remember, it's fleeting. When the crowds called Jesus the Son of David and the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they weren't telling Jesus something that he didn't already know about himself. And I'll tell you, it's a really dangerous place to be, to find the answers to your questions about your identity on this side of the pulpit or on this side of a camera or on this side of the adoration of a crowd. But but Jesus, who had endured the temptation in the wilderness, who had spent countless nights on the mountainside just praying to his Father, Jesus had the personal and the emotional infrastructure to own the moment rather than this moment owning him or changing his course, changing his behavior. Jesus in this moment where where popularity is being thrust upon in this poster moment on Palm Sunday is who he had been from the beginning. Jesus riding on the colt was the embodiment in the moment of the Beatitudes. He was the poor in spirit who was delighted and happy with the praise of children and with rocks if no one else cried out. He was, he was mourning the idolatry of his people. He wasn't flexing, but he was reserving his strength in true meekness. He wept because he was hungry and thirsty to see true righteousness on earth. He was full of mercy. He was shining in the purity of his heart and he was ready to establish peace by way of his own persecution. 
Jesus entered the city at this moment when things were at a fever pitch, knowing that his presence and his entrance, the way he did it, fulfilled prophetic hopes, knowing that his presence would excite the crowds and knowing that his actions and prophetic judgment of the temple and its leaders would inflame their anger and incite them to action. Jesus knew that this moment would lead to his death. Success for Jesus meant faithfulness. And faithfulness for Jesus meant doing what his Father had sent him to do in the way he was meant to do it. To give up on short-term success and to instead be scorned and abandoned. To be insulted and demeaned. To suffer and to die for us and for our salvation and for the sake of the world. And his grace that week didn't look altogether amazing. Instead, it looked agonizing. To many, it looked like failure. In the upside-down kingdom of God, the road to greatness is not an uphill climb to breathe the rare air of celebrity, but it's instead a downward descent into servitude, self-denial, and death. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If anyone wants to save their lives, they're going to lose it. But anyone who loses their lives, gives it up for my sake, is going to find it. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The pursuit of amazing, of appearing successful and influential is a chasing after the wind. It's a cul-de-sac, not an open highway. But the way of, of sacrifice, the way of humility, the way of cross-carrying, of yoking up next to Jesus in the kingdom way of faithfulness leads to life. And I wonder, could it be that in this, this uh, acutely uncomfortable season where we feel chained at home, where few of us can go out, we, we can't really go out and make a name for ourselves, where many of our pursuits are halted, that the Spirit of God in a season where we feel chained up is actually leveraging this season to lead us into greater levels, levels of liberation and freedom. That in starving our desire to be movers and shakers, to pursue the amazing, that he's actually preparing us to feast on something more substantial. That he's working by the Holy Spirit to enable us to be content rather than covetous, present rather than perfect, grateful rather than ingratiating, and restful rather than rushed. Might it be, that in the middle of this, he's disrupting our pursuit of the amazing to teach us what true greatness really looks like. Uh, for all of you, I want to just invite you to consider, like, what is the Holy Spirit trying to say to you today? If you had to just, like, take a screenshot of what's going on in your heart or in your mind right now, what's the thing that the Holy Spirit is just, like, drawing attention to? Where's, like, the clicker of the Spirit going on the desktop of your heart? Where's that place where you have, like, actively pursued making a name for yourself? 
In what ways are you tempted by the allure of external success or appearing put together, trying to like portray that you have this perfect life? Where do you feel this tension between success and faithfulness? Are you laboring to gain an identity or like Jesus, are you working from an identity given to you by your heavenly Father, one that enables you to cease striving? How might your insecurities and the places where you overcompensate indicate where the Lord wants to heal you? What is the work you think that the Lord is trying to do in you right now? I told Emily this morning, she said, hey, I said, hey, this sermon is going to sound like one that I really need to listen to. And that's the vulnerability of being married to a mirror, someone who sees what I'm really like, and especially in this season. And maybe you live with other people too, and like you see in their responses to you your own vanity or the, the hurriedness of your spirit and insecurity that's coming up. What does the Lord want to do with that? I want to invite you just right now, wherever you are, if you just uh, pray with me, and we want to invite the Spirit to do a good work in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray uh, for my friends at home. I pray for myself too. Jesus, that you pour out your Spirit on us. That in this time of exile and diaspora, we would find you especially close. As David prayed, like, would you, would you point out the offensive ways in us? Would you search us and know us, know our hearts, test us and know our anxious thoughts? God, whatever work of healing or strengthening or encouraging you want to do in us, please, please do it. Whatever lies you want to oust, speak your truth over us, Jesus, we ask for it. Whatever disposition of spirit or mind or body that is not setting ourselves up to be like beneficiaries of your love who can just relax in the moment, Lord, would you just reorder us and reposition us? Today, may today be a day of rest. May today be a day of renewal. I pray a special blessing on friends at home uh, who, who are watching this later, who are working in hospitals, who are working in government, who are in industries that are like really, really affected and they are not off in this season, but especially on, that you give them the grace uh, to just rest in you, uh, to carry their own cross in their vocation in the way that they serve. And may they find in this work the company of Jesus who carries his cross. I love you, Lord. We ask for your help. I'm going to end with this uh, Centering Prayer by Peter Traben Haas from his book, Centering Prayers. And I wondered if, just wherever you are, if you wouldn't just open your hands and let me uh, pray this over you. And if there are words that really, like, jump out to you, if you just say an amen to that. I wish to sink deeply into the silence and receive your life-giving rest. For all the demands upon me, for all the people who need my time and attention, for the situations that require my best efforts, I request help. Thank you for the ways your grace liberates me, releases me from having to perform, and liberates me to live freely in each moment, gently, lightly, and calmly. Amen. Friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. God bless you. Love you guys. Before the, the whole thing ends up, say bye in the chat box to everybody, all your friends. Know we love you. We're praying for you. Sign up for the 24-7 a prayer vigil and be on the lookout for emails this week about ways that we can hop in and give. So long, guys. Have a great Sunday. Enjoy some rest.